paloma y voló. Oh, oh, ay, marinero navegó. everyone. My name is Leticia Peguero and thank you for joining me on Out of the Margins, where we're defining youth justice one podcast at a time. Today I'm speaking to Liz Ryan, president and CEO of Youth First. Hi Liz. I am so glad to be chatting with you today. Give me a sense of who you are. Tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you get involved in this work? Where did you grow up? I was uh, raised in Wilmington, Delaware. And um, as a kid, I actually worked with young people. I was a swim coach and I taught swimming lessons to little kids and love working with young people. And so it's been a passion of mine since I've been very young. And uh, after I graduated from college, I got very interested in what was happening in government, what was happening around the world, um, in our country, and looking at human rights issues, and I became very concerned that there was this group of young people who were being cast aside hmm. and really being left behind. Um, and when you look at the juvenile justice system today, you see so many possibilities that could be happening with these young people, mm-hmm. yet we are placing them in places where it it's putting them further behind. And so it's just a passion of mine. It's something that I feel very strongly about. Every time I see a newspaper article about a young person being harmed in the justice system, it just breaks my heart, and it makes me so angry that that we're allowing this kind of thing to happen. Um, And so that's really what fuels me going forward. And, And also when I talk with young people who have either been in the justice system or risk of being in the justice system and I see the amazing possibilities with these young people it makes it gives me a lot of hope Mm -hmm. that we can change and that things can be different and that it's really about um, ensuring opportunity for every single young person Mm -hmm. and making sure that if we do have a juvenile justice system it's very very small uh, it's there's a limited involvement with it and that it helps Mm -hmm. young people and right now, it's not doing mm-hmm. any of those. So your website tells us on any given day, there are about 54,000 young people that are incarcerated and confined, right, or in detention. And so how, how, how have we, as a country, as a human collective, gotten to this place where we think that it's acceptable, right, for certain young people... Um, and we can talk about that a little bit more, to be incarcerated, right? 54,000, that's a huge number um, of, of young men and women that are confined, right? So tell me, like, how you see this? How has this happened? Well, I, you know, just to put that number in perspective, I mean, that's on any given day. And so we know that there, if you add it up over the course of the year, it's many more times that... Um, we are an outlier in the world. No other country in the world incarcerates children so routinely the way that we do and places them in such harsh conditions and with such uh, punitive kind of sanctions around that, things that, that really undermine the success of these young people in moving forward. So we are really an outlier in the world. I think that we do this because it's the easy thing to do that it's easy to contain and confine young people rather than working with them on helping them to become successful adults. It's hard to work with teenagers, and it takes a special kind of person to work with teenagers, but for people who love working with teenagers, it's, it's, it's 
it's what we should be doing. It's, and this is, you know, it's a time in a young person's life when they're pushing boundaries, when they're trying to figure out who they are, um, when they're taking risks, and they're, they're open to all kinds of possibilities. And instead of nurturing that, we're incapacitating them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're making it harder for them to grow and thrive when they become adults. I also think that when you look at the juvenile justice system, you can't talk about it without talking about racial and ethnic disparities mm-hmm. in the system. And so it is, when I look at the system and I see that if you're an African-American male, you're five times more likely to be locked up than a white youth, even when charged with the same kinds of offenses, there's something happening here, and it's uh, implicit bias. Some believe it's racism. Others believe it's individual decision-making. The outcome is the same. It is a racially biased system. Hmm. And so we're incapacitating some young people while other young people are getting opportunities hmm. and being diverted. So we're not saying that, that more white youth need to be incapacitated sure, and locked sure, up. Yeah. What we're saying is that black and brown youth should have the same opportunities that white youth do. Uh, and it doesn't mean that young people shouldn't be held accountable if they get into conflict with the law. However, it does mean that we need the system to be fair. Mm-hmm. And we know from polling that we've done that most Americans believe the system should be fair and that states should work to reduce racial and ethnic disparities in this system. You know, this system, this, sort of the signature feature of juvenile justice are these youth prisons. Mm-hmm. And when we looked around the country, we did an inventory of like what's out there, what mm-hmm. are the facilities, mm-hmm. and you look at when they were established. This kind of model was established in the 1820s. Hmm. So we're talking about something that's almost 200 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an approach that just was designed to support youth, and we know that it does the exact opposite, uh, that often these places just warehouse young people. And so we're talking about places where this model has been in place almost 200 years, and these facilities, you know, may have been renovated or rebuilt over the years, but it's the same basic model. And so in a lot of the towns where these exist, these these facilities have been there, or a facility has existed in that town for a really long time. So when you think about the economy of that town, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the jobs in that town, mm-hmm. where people work, that, that it's it really is entrenched. Mm-hmm. And so we part of the the change that has to occur has to look at those sort of entrenched uh, forces that are keeping these in place. So in addition to the fact that we have a racially biased system, we also have entrenched economic forces that are keeping the system where it is. Just tell me a little bit more about like who are these young people? And when we say young people, what are we talking about? Are we talking like 15, 21? Like just give me a little bit of a, the demographic layout of what we're, what we're talking about yeah, here. Yeah, so that's, that's great. So of the 54,000 young people who are incarcerated, and we're using the term incarceration to be the equivalent of deprivation of liberty. So mm. that includes young people who are in youth prisons, in juvenile detention facilities, so pre-adjudication, and also includes a number of other out-of-home placements. Uh, we call it all incarceration because that's what the young people believe it is, and it is an international standard looking at deprivation of liberty. Uh, of that 54,000, 68% of the kids who are incarcerated are young people of color. And we're talking about African-American, Latino, Native American, 
boys and girls between the ages roughly 12 and 18. And some of the youth are 18, 19, 20, 21, because young people in the juvenile justice system, if they have been adjudicated delinquent before the age of 18, they can be in the juvenile justice system up until their 21st or 22nd birthday, depending on the state. Mm -hmm. So sometimes in the facilities, you might have an 18, 19, or 20 year old. Uh, what you see, though, is young people who are, uh, you know, just the beginning of their teenage years through through their teenage years. Um, in all regions of the country, there are young people who are incarcerated. There, you know, no state is the exception to this. We also know from the federal data from the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, which is the, the federal home for juvenile mm -hmm. justice, that mm -hmm. there are disparities in every state. Uh, and they have been looking at this for the last two decades and have determined that this exists in every state. We also know that uh, many of the young people uh, are in communities that are resource deprived. And that there may or may not be, you know, in terms of income levels, their income levels tend to be more lower income. Mm -hmm. um, when you match up poverty rates, where the lowest child poverty rates are, and where children are incarcerated, it's, it's almost one for one. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing I want to say is typically people will think, well, disparities are only in certain regions of the country. And when you look at the map that we created, you'll see several states pop out. Um, so when you look at African-American boys, for example, African-American boys and white boys, states like Wisconsin and Connecticut and New Jersey pop up. So in Connecticut, I think it's 19 times more likely for an African-American wow. youth to be locked up than a white youth. Hmm. And in Connecticut and Wisconsin, it's closer to 24, 25 times wow. more likely. Uh, so there are, you know, the average is around five times for African-American boys versus white boys. But in some states, it's astronomically Mm -hmm. And it's not just certain regions of the country. It's, as you mm -hmm. see, it's like it's mid-Atlantic, it's northeast, mm -hmm. it's the Midwest, it's mm -hmm. the south, it's the west. So this mm -hmm. is happening everywhere. Um, and so it's something that we all need to focus on addressing. So it's not something that's just this part of the country or mm -hmm. this particular population. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are also, well, the other thing that we're seeing that's also interesting when you look at the intersection of gender, race, and ethnicity, we're seeing girls now taking up a larger share of, of the incarcerated population. Now, incarceration rates have been coming down over the last decade. They're at you know, a 50% reduction from a decade ago, which is good news. What we do know is that girls actually make up a larger share, hmm. and we're seeing girls coming in on offenses that boys are not, things that were disproportionately coming in. So girls uh, being uh, arrested, detained, and incarcerated for status offenses. Status offenses are things like running away, skipping school, underage drinking, things that if you were over 18 or over wouldn't be considered yeah. um, criminal. Yeah. So I just would love for you to talk a little bit about that tension that exists when we're talking about reform, right? We're talking about um, closing youth prisons, having a more um, restorative, holistic approach to what we... Um, we know to be an unjust system. So what is that tension, right, between, um, like, personal responsibility? Like, you, you've behaved, you know, like, maybe in a way that is, isn't great for yourself or community. And then the sort of other end of locking young people up. Yeah, that, that's such a great way to frame it. Because what we know from the research is that most 
teenagers engage in delinquent behavior during their teenage years. So this is normal adolescent behavior. Yeah, I did. <laughs> everyone did. We all Anyone did. who says they didn't is like, I wow, know. you were in real acceptance. Yeah. Um, so it's it's so kids misbehave, kids push the boundaries, kids take risks. We know from lots of studies that uh, that this is a time when you're influenced by your peers. Your peers want to run off and go do something. You, you're right there with them. You're very susceptible to peer influence. And you also uh, aren't thinking about long-term consequences. That part of your brain hasn't developed yet. So you're thinking, yes, I can go do this and I can go do that. And, and in some ways, you know, you think about it, it's, it's exciting because then that's how you, we, we move forward as a society because we have a group of people who, who aren't thinking inside the box or thinking outside the box and they're pushing the, pushing the boundaries. We also know from the research, you know, so we know from the research that most kids engage in delinquent behavior. We also know from the research most kids age out of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that this is normal and that what we're doing with our justice system is we're actually intervening where we shouldn't be in a lot of instances um, because kids are going to age out of that. And we have a choice to make. We have a choice to make about how we intervene with young people. If something, because it, it, you know, the research really would say we should do a lot less intervention because kids are gonna age out of that. Um, of the intervention that we do, we can ask ourselves, is this going to help nurture this young person? Is this gonna help this person age out of this faster? Or is this going to hold this young person back and actually undermine their capacity and actually negatively impact their development. And so when we look at our justice system today, we see that we're actually over-intervening with some kids and not with others. And our interventions tend to be very punitive. When you look at how much we're, we're resourcing uh, incarceration, versus hmm. effective community-based programs. And not all community-based programs are effective, but a lot of them are. We're spending so much more money on the incapacitation through incarceration. And we know, the research is very clear on this, that young people who, when they're locked up, they are substantially more likely to end up in the adult criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. So what does that say? That says we're just warehousing them. Mm -hmm. We're negatively impacting their development. We are undermining their educational needs. We are not helping them to figure out how to grow and thrive mm -hmm. because we're incapacitating them. We're keeping them away from family, away from communities. So they're not learning how to navigate uh, uh, navigate life. Yeah. Um, and then we just throw them out you know, in four years, five years yeah. after we lock them up, and then we expect them to grow and thrive. And that, you know, they, they don't have a good education. They don't, they're not yeah. able to get a job in some instances, or they don't have the tools and skills. So... When you look at how we're doing this, there's there is there is this sort of instinct of like we want to respond, uh, but the way that we're responding is really really harmful um, for for the young people who are in the juvenile justice system. So we need to do a couple things here. We need to ensure that there's fairness in terms of how the interventions are applied. Like they're not being applied across the board. We're we're only intervening really in the lives of poor black and brown children. We're not intervening in the lives of white kids uh, to a certain extent. Now, if you're a poor white kid, you may be in the juvenile justice system, and that is the case in some instances. So income and access to resources does play a role here. If you have resources, you can hire an attorney, and that oftentimes can um, 
very positively impact the outcome. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So we know that poor black and brown kids and even middle-income black and brown kids are going to be much more impacted by the system. So we need to ensure fairness. We also need to ensure that these interventions are not harmful and actually are positive and support the development of young people. Now, one other thing I will say is that we also can't just close youth prisons. We have to do much more than that. That's a, that's a way of getting rid of the worst and most harmful uh, aspect of the juvenile justice system, but it's also, we have to free up, that will help free up resources so that we can have a range of supports and services mm -hmm. for youth in the community. And we know when you look at, when you put kids on probation and you have a long period of probation, um, oftentimes when kids mess up on probation, probation officers will, will want them to get locked up. So when you look at the data about who's locked up, and what they're locked up for, you see a chunk of kids locked up for probation violations. Mm -hmm. So there has to be a probation piece related to this, meaning less time on probation, a different kind of probation, mm -hmm. um, something that's more community-based and more restorative and mm -hmm. healing, as you've said. Mm -hmm. um, so we have to look, so, so this is looking at the juvenile justice system across the board in terms of yeah. what needs to happen. When you're out talking to others that maybe aren't as convinced as I am, how do you engage in that conversation? There are a number of things I talk about. One is I, I think it is one of the major civil rights issues of our time. And if you talk with people about this is a civil rights uh, movement, it's not over, it continues. And that this is a major part of the civil rights movement. And so when people think about racial justice issues, and how our society is treating people of color, you're, you're putting this in that context. And so for some people, hearing that frame resonates with them because they want to be part of a movement, a part of the civil rights movement, and they see this as a, as a racial justice issue. I also think that when you're talking about issues impacting young people of color, you have to be engaging and involving young people of color <laughs> in the effort. And... Uh, one of the things that I, in the time that I've been doing advocacy work in juvenile justice, um, when I first came into it, there were a lot of attorneys working on these issues around the country, and there wasn't as much movement building. There was really more of a focus on litigation. Litigation was the major strategy. They would sue the state or the county over mainly conditions of confinement and juvenile uh, facilities, the youth prisons and detention centers, and that was the hammer. That was the main tool. I think over the last decade or so, what we've seen is young people who are directly affected by these issues, their families engaging in direct action in trying to change the system. So through the effort that we are part of, it's really a collective strategy with many people around the country at the national level in organizations and in the states, is that there is a primary focus on engaging and involving young, black and brown girls and boys, their parents and their families and communities in these efforts. Because when you look at the history of civil rights and you look at who's been engaged and involved in these efforts, it really needs to be the most effective constituencies. Mm -hmm. And so in juvenile mm -hmm. justice, there's always um, been a concern about putting people at risk because they've been incarcerated, and that is certainly true. Um, However, I really feel that it's, it's got to be a primary focus, and that's part of the solution in moving forward on these issues. 
Um, and that that's a power sharing issue hmm. I think for for people who've been um, litigating on these issues and and taking a leadership role. It means setting a larger leadership table. So the litigators and the, the lawyers who do direct advocacy on behalf of these young people are are at a table with a larger group of people with directly impacted people. Mm-hmm. And that to me is very very important in terms of how we're doing the work. And then I think we have to. As a, as a group, look at this from the perspective of it's going to take all of us. Mm. It's going to take all of us to get this done. Um, it's not just one person. It's not just one group. And it's not just one organization nationally or in the states. That is really a collective strategy because we're trying to influence decision makers who tend to be primarily old, white, and male. <laughs> right? we, have to, we have to pay attention to that and think about how is that going to move? And for some people, they they want to um, uh, you know take on a certain type of tactic, and others don't. But I think we kind of need all of that. Yeah. In some instances, there's a you know maybe that particular lawmaker needs to hear from a conservative from his or her district. Mm-hmm. But in other instances, maybe they really need to be hearing from affected constituencies. So that the impact of what they're doing and what they're voting on is impacting a group of people and that's not right. Just quickly tell me like when you all say movement building and power sharing, what what does that mean for for youth first? So what that means for youth first and movement building really is about working with people around the country who are interested in this issue and with those who are affected by this issue. And so the movement building can engage and involve all kinds of individuals, all kinds of organizations. Um, and not just people who are interested in youth, uh, youth justice issues, but potentially other issues. So really, movement building is, is also across movements, right? Mm-hmm. So when we look at um, the lack of investment in urban communities mm-hmm. in this country, and we say there are people who are looking at economic justice-type issues, and then there's other folks who are looking at um, the, the school-to-prison pipeline, yeah, and then yeah, we have yeah. people who are looking at police accountability, and then folks who are looking at youth prisons, mm-hmm. the youth first. We need to actually be working with all of those folks across movements. And the movement building itself really means um, putting your own organizational considerations aside. Um, It's not about your particular organization or a particular organization. It is about the issue. And that's hard for some folks. Hmm. And that also means (laughs) collaboration. That means coalition building. That means also um, sharing resources uh, because when you look across movements, you know, th- things that need to have need to happen, it doesn't always mean that that the that one group is in charge or one group has all the resources. There really has to be resource sharing across of that. And that also goes with the power sharing aspect of this. Um, if we ourselves are trying to dismantle a system that has at its core uh, uh, again unfairness, implicit bias, and, and racism, essentially, systemic racism, you have to then look at the movement itself and say, are we replicating yes. what these systems are that we're trying That's to right. dismantle? That's right. And so we, in our movement, we have to be looking at the power-sharing aspect mm-hmm. of this, right? Which mm-hmm. means that folks who may have been leaders or may be, um, you know, organizing something in their community have to think about that. The decision-making has to be more collective, right? Mm -hmm. That there have to be multiple people at the table and most definitely anyone who's directly affected by Mm -hmm. this. 
So sometimes there's tension there in that movement, in the movement because we have people who've played different roles and yeah. have done amazing work, but need to think about as we're moving this forward, A, litigation's only part of the strategy or strategy in some places. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily get you where you want to go ultimately. It can get you partway there. Um, but that also in terms of making sure that the decisions are not made by one person mm -hmm. or one group of people. They're mm -hmm. actually, it's more collective. And so that means power sharing in how we make decisions. Mm -hmm. That means power sharing in how we resource the movement. Mm -hmm. um, as part of Youth First, we think it's absolutely critical that there are multiple groups at the table mm -hmm. and that there are resources for, for all of these organizations. And that's really important and very different, I think, than, than what we may have tried to accomplish in the past. What you're saying is that there are different types of intelligences yes. that matter and that the lived experience of the directly impacted is super important and super powerful for us to hold up. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll give yeah. you a couple of examples of that. I, I, was at a, I was at a meeting the other day and there were about 15 people and it included three young people who'd been in the system and several uh, decision makers in the county. Um, who were in different agencies, and one of the people from the agencies said something like, well, let's hear from the youth, and then let's hear from the experts. Hmm. And uh, that wow. struck me as really yeah. underscoring sort of what we're talking about here, which is that they see people who have degrees um, as experts and people who are most affected as not being experts. Right. And so one of the things that we are talking about in within Youth First is to support and elevate the voice and the expertise of young people and their families who've been directly affected mm -hmm. by this. They are the experts mm -hmm. on this issue. And so, again, setting a, a table, a larger leadership table, where we're not devaluing the lawyer or the person who's who's uh, who has the the degrees, but we're sort of leveling the playing field yeah. and having a leadership table with all of all of these mm -hmm. individuals together. And that to me is that that is what this is about. Yeah. Um, but oftentimes you'll also see people who are tend to do the policy work tend to be white, and mm -hmm. people who do the community organizing work tend to be people of color. That's true. And that's another thing that we need to think about as well is that we can't just uh, pigeonhole somebody into a particular type of work because of their race or ethnicity or their age, mm -hmm. you know, we have to think about expanding the, um, the, the roles for people or like if it's a young person or family member, why is it that they are always called upon to tell their story yes, yes. and they're not asked, well, what are the solutions? What are the policy That's recommendations right. you That's would right. like to have? So one of the things that we're doing through this initiative is we're going to be piloting in three of the states a youth engagement and leadership network. And in each of those states, they will be working with young people who are directly affected by this issue. We're going to be supporting them in creating a participatory research project mm. so they can figure out what questions do they want to have asked of other young people, what vision do they have for the future, and then how do they want to promote that, and how can we help them do that? How can we help them figure out how you do a research project, how mm. you issue a report potentially and multiple ways of issuing a report and then how do you get that in front of policymakers? Mm -hmm. How do you how do you make sure that policymakers are actually hearing what you're saying and how do we make that happen? So from our standpoint, we see it as a capacity building effort for these young people who are directly affected by this. So that's a that's a core part mm -hmm. of 
of the campaign work in these states. And you can see already in, in a couple of the states where young people are actually have paid positions to mm -hmm. work as part of the campaign, what a, what, a, what a different kind of campaign it is. I want you to dream a little bit. We're having this conversation. It's 2036. What has... What has youth first accomplished? Wow. Well, I, when I, I have a lot of things I would like to see by 2036. I would like to see a youth justice system that does not, that no longer relies on incarceration. And uh, you wouldn't have these kinds of youth prisons around the country or other types of facilities like that, uh, that we would have a robust array of community-based programs that are informed by young people, that they're created and designed by young people for young people, and that those programs serve young people in the justice system and also outside the justice system, um, so that we're not waiting until a young person um, pushes the boundaries to, to, put, to, to provide support for them, that we're providing those throughout. I would also want to see, and I, I really hope that this is what can come to fruition, is a, an army of young people who are uh, leading and driving continued reforms in mm -hmm. this arena and that we see the leadership of young people who have been directly affected by these issues running organizations um, actively involved in the movement and uh, achieving success after success. I mean that to me is I think unleashing the power of young people is really what this is about and trying to ensure that as we're moving forward we are uh, young people's leadership and capacity is nurtured not just through the programs we want to see happen but through the movement you know for this vision to become true to become realized where where do we need to focus our attention that's that's a great question I think we really need to focus our attention at the state and local level. Hmm. Um, that is where most of the resources are in the juvenile justice system. So when you look at how much money states and localities spend on juvenile justice versus what the feds invest, it's, it's dramatically different. The feds invest very, very little. What I would want to focus on is redirecting hmm. the way we're currently spending the resources from very ineffective, harmful incarceration to community-based options mm. that are effective and fair. Um, I think the feds still need to play a role. Right now, the, the feds play a very limited role. They put a little bit of money into the states to try to get states to, to meet some minimum standards. I would hope in 20 years that that the standard, that you know, there would be a gold standard, there would be a higher bar, and that there would be a more robust array of federal resources that would incentivize states to keep moving in the right direction. Mm -hmm. I think right now the, the feds have just continued to under-resource this area and uh, to the point where the, you know, I think the House has eliminated funding. Um, so we're, we're seeing you know, the feds' resources go down. But that, even with that, I think that a lot of work can be done at the state and it's, you know, one of the things from our national poll showed was that Americans think that uh, incentives, financial incentives, ought to be put into place in states and localities to ensure appropriate investments in alternative programs, restorative justice type programs, programs that heal, programs that allow young people to give back and to, to restore uh, 
the community. And so those are the kinds of things that we know people want, but that's not what we're resourcing now. So if there's a way, like in some states have done this, they've had uh, financial incentives put into place between the state and the counties so that kids are kept in the county hmm. uh, and there's a disincentive to send them to the state to facility. The level. Yeah, yeah. So, folks, we are out of time. We've been talking to Liz Ryan of the Youth First Initiative. Um, so, a few things. I think one is go to youthfirstinitiative.org and sign up. It's easy. Join the movement and help build this movement to close youth prisons and to have a more fair system. Also, I'm going to say follow Liz Ryan on Twitter. Her handle is at LizRyanYJ. So you can follow me too if you'd like, but follow Liz more importantly. Um, and um, I, I'd like to end before I give some shout outs to our folks that help edit and, and make this fabulous um, with a quote from Nelson Mandela, which I have on my personal email. Um, so Nelson Mandela told us, um, taught us so many things, but he said, for to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. And I think that's what we've been talking about today with Liz Ryan of the Youth First Initiative. So Out of the Margins is a team at the Andrus Family Fund and our wonderful communications team at Soul Design. Thank you so much, y'all. I look forward to sharing more with you soon. Oh, oh, oh.